Good evening, everyone, and welcome to uh, the continuing 20th annual season of the Faith and Life Lecture Series. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, the Senior Pastor of St. Philip the Deacon, uh, and on behalf of this congregation, which is thrilled to present these events, it's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you all here tonight, and I want to say that both to those of you who are here in the house, as well as those of you joining us online. My hunch is we have a whole lot of people, possibly from around the world, joining us tonight, so a special welcome to all of you who are joining us online. We're so glad uh, you are here. Um, can I, I, I always like to begin by asking, is anyone here, obviously I can't see you at home, uh, but is anyone here in the room here for the, your first Faith in Life event? A few of you? Okay, good. Well, special welcome to you. If, if you have not been to a Faith in Life event uh, in the past, I'll give you a little bit of sort of an overview. Um, for the last 20 years, we have invited people uh, from around the world, and indeed tonight we are inviting someone from halfway around the world, uh, who come from every conceivable occupation you can imagine, business people, nonprofit leaders, journalists, lawyers, doctors, bloggers, historians, academics, some theologians, we have not historically had a ton of theologians, um, and they come and they talk about what they do in the context of the Christian faith, and all of them are Christian, they come from a wide variety of traditions, uh, but that's the uh, common uh, thing that connects them. And for tonight's flow, I will tell you, after I'm done introducing our guest, um, he will speak for He's teasing me. He's talking about going on for an hour and a half. I don't think he's going to go that long. Um, he'll probably talk for 35, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, something like that. After that, and this is very important, we will have an opportunity for question and answer time. So those of you who are here in the hall, please be thinking of things to ask him. And you can come up to one of the microphones there or there. After, at that point, I'll invite you up to ask those questions. Those of you at home, uh, you can write us a question on the Faith and Life website where you're currently watching this. I believe there's a box there for you to submit questions. Or you can email a question to social, S-O-C-I-A-L, at spdlc.org. Social at spdlc.org. Um, I'm going to invite our, or, or introduce our speaker in a second. I do, though, want to say a special word of welcome to a pastor who he's traveling with. They just came in, into the States on Tuesday. I think right now it's, I don't even know what time it is for them. They've given up think, figuring it out. But Pastor Kondo, it has been fabulous to spend some time with you. Uh, thank you for being here tonight, and welcome to you as well. So I mentioned that we have invited all kinds of different speakers over the 20 years of this uh, series, and tonight is no exception. I think he may be our first missionary. Uh, he grew up in California. Uh, he may talk about some of this, I'm not sure. He originally thought he wanted to go into IT work. God had other plans, and through a, a number of events, he ended up finding himself uh, doing mission work in a rural area of northern Japan where he has been for the last 10 years. He's married to a Japanese woman. They have four children there. He preaches every week um, in Japanese, which I find astonishing. All of that by itself would be worth listening to. But in addition to that, quite, I think, by accident or providentially, he's ended up over the last five or six years creating what has become one of the biggest YouTube, YouTube channels about affordable wristwatches. 
So at this point in my introduction, I would typically say I, I ask my speakers for something kind of unusual or quirky that I can say about them. Um, but I think a missionary who has a YouTube channel focusing on watches is quirky enough. So will you join me in welcoming Dave Robison? Good evening, everybody. It is a pleasure to be here in Minnesota, and actually, it's my first time uh, in the state. Like I said, I'm like Tim said, I'm originally from California, so it's good to be here. Um, my grandmother was actually uh, grew up in this area and lived here. My dad was actually born in Minneapolis, uh, but he I think he moved out when he was around two years old, so doesn't have much memory. So I've, I've always grown up hearing a lot about Minnesota from my grandmother. She's a big Vikings fan, um, so we got to do a little bit of touring today. Um, so it's really exciting to finally be here. Um, as Pastor Tim mentioned, yeah, I'm a, a missionary in Japan. We've been serving uh, with my family in northeastern Japan for the past 10 years. Uh, first in a, a city called Morioka, which is where Pastor Kondo's church is. We've been working with his church the entire time. And then about five years ago, they decided to do a church plant in the city of Miyako, which is one of the cities that was um, heavily affected by the, the tsunami back in 2011. They've been doing relief work, and out of that relief work, they felt the burden to start a new church in that city. Um, so five years ago, we were sent down uh, there, and we've been in that rural town for the last five years. And tonight, I'm going to talk to you about how I make videos about wristwatches and post them on YouTube. Um, so yeah, that's a weird thing. And, and if you would have told me five years ago that I would be standing here giving a talk like this, I would have thought you were completely crazy, and it sounds pretty crazy. Uh, but there's been so many interesting and, and weird ways that God has used that, you know, in, in my mind and often the way I feel, comparatively frivolous hobby uh, to connect me with people, to enable me to speak to people, to live out and to share my faith with others uh, in just so many interesting ways. And I've seen, I think, a lot of connections in how I um, kind of perceive YouTube and interacting with people on there uh, that I've sort of gleaned from my life as a missionary in Japan and the lessons that I've learned on the mission field. And that's kind of some of the stuff that I'd like to share with you guys tonight and talk about sort of the, some of the overlap there and how talking about watches on YouTube uh, can open up many doors for things that are a little bit deeper than these surface level things like mechanical movements and the types of dials that there are and the case materials that they're made out of. Um, so, but before we go any further, um, there's kind of two main points that I'd like to try and get across tonight, and I'm going to just mention those up front, and then hopefully you can kind of keep those in mind as we talk about these different things. And the first thing that I, I'd hope that we could get out of this is just the idea that God can be glorified in any and every aspect of our lives. I think sometimes we can sort of think like, uh, you know, God is glorified in our, our church service or in our ministry uh, or in our worship on Sundays, but God can be glorified in our work, in our professions, and even in, again, comparatively frivolous and silly hobbies like collecting affordable wristwatches. Um, the second thing I'd hope that we could get out of this and that I'd like to share with you tonight uh, is just what an incredible opportunity we have as Christians to have an influence and an impact on the world 
through a platform like YouTube. And I want to put that second one kind of in the context of something that Jesus said. If we can get to... Now my, now my slides are hung up here. Hang on one second. This is my fault. My computer's freezing up. Let me restart this. Okay, let me back up one slide. Okay, we're good. Um, so Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, he said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And in light of this passage, I think what I would like to do is take Jesus' metaphor and um, we can think about YouTube as one of the biggest hills that the world has ever seen. If you want to shine a light where the most people can see it, uh, YouTube is one of those places where we can be as Christians, where we can be present, where we can live out our lives, where we can show the, the things that Christ has done in our lives in order to shine Christ's light throughout the world. Um, so that's the, the second thing I'd hope that we could get out of this. So let's start by talking about that a little bit and talking about what exactly YouTube is, uh, because I think there are, maybe we don't realize just how big and how many opportunities there are there. Um, I think we often look at YouTube maybe as comparable to like television or Amazon Prime or Netflix. It's this place where you go to, to watch videos to watch content and it's actually more than that but talking about the size first one interesting statistic there are 2.6 billion people every month that use YouTube that's almost one-third of the entire population of the world um, so that's how big this platform is I uh, talking about just in the US 81% of adults have used YouTube so I would imagine probably at least eight in ten out of the people Eight out of 10 people here uh, are probably familiar with it, have used it for one thing or another. Uh, YouTube is also the second largest search engine and the second most popular social media platform. And this begins to tell you that YouTube is, again, more than just a video watching platform. People use it as a search engine. They use it to search for topics, for information, for guides on how to do things. So they're going there for that. But it's also a social media platform. It's, it's a place where people can connect, where they can converse, where they can interact. And so again, if you think of like Amazon Prime or Netflix or even you know, cable television, that's a very one-way kind of medium. You sit down and you watch from there and, and that's kind of the end of it. You, you might take what you've learned there and you know, apply it in your life or something, uh, but there's no communication with the person on the screen. Uh, YouTube opens up the door for a lot more interaction to have, and it really is, in addition to being the, the largest video platform in the world, it is also a social media platform where people can interact with each other. So that interaction, it most often takes place in comments in videos. So whenever I post a video, there'll be a section underneath the video where people can go and they can leave comments and they will ask me questions. They might ask questions of other people who have seen the video. So I'll post a review of a watch and people will ask me things uh, about the watch that I didn't mention or they'll correct me and say I said the wrong thing here or there. And I have the opportunity to go back and I can reply to them and I can you know, talk with them and share with them. Uh, people within the comments talk to each other. So even if I'm not there conversing, these conversations are happening all around the videos that I post. 
Another thing that YouTube allows you to do is have live streams. So you can go and do a live video broadcast similar to what's going on right now. And when you do that, YouTube will alert everybody who's subscribed to your channel that a live broadcast is going on. If they click to watch on it, uh, there'll be a chat room where they can go. And you can have a, a live conversation with people where you're on the video or you and a, a panel of guests even can be on the video. And other people will be typing in questions live and you can just talk back and forth and it enables that interaction that way. And then the third and final way that it enables this is through community posts and polls. So very similar to Facebook, uh, YouTube has a, a newsfeed that if you have a channel, you can post pictures, you can post questions, you can post polls, and people can interact with you that way. So it provides all of these different ways to kind of turn you know, the, the traditional one-way medium of television and video watching into a two-way stream, and even more than that, because they're not just talking with you, they're also talking with other people who are watching the video, and the video kind of serves as this starting point where people with similar interests can gather together and talk about it. And so what YouTube has kind of become is a sort of digital town hall, I feel like. It's a place where people come to learn about and discuss topics that they're interested in and to interact with people that share their interest and to make new friends. Um, and another way to look at this is this is a place where any person anywhere in the world has the chance to speak to up to 2.6 billion people instantly. Uh, so it's just an incredibly powerful platform in that sense. And again, it's a place where people from around the world are gathering. And you know, when I think of that and when I initially started considering starting a YouTube channel and, and considering that, that was something that came to my mind, is to me this feels like one of the biggest kind of missions fields that we've ever seen. Uh, but YouTube allows you to instantly get across vast geographic distance barriers, across cultural barriers, across so many of the difficulties that we have as, in missionaries with, as missionaries with connecting with people, uh, YouTube gives you the chance to get in front of people from, from countries all over the world in a very easy way. And as I started building that channel and doing it, I, you know, I kind of began to, to think about it. And I started to approach the, uh, the way that I talked about faith and the way that I tried to connect with people uh, in light of what I was learning in Japan as a missionary. Uh, one of the things that I think you know, maybe we can sometimes be nervous about is how people uh, might react to, uh, to us when we share our faith or when we share kind of these personal things about us. And I think in Japan, uh, we have a, a similar um, challenge, you know, when we talk to people in Japan. Japan is, is a place that has very few Christians, and there's often a lot of, uh, maybe a little bit of suspicion and skepticism. People are just not sure what to expect. And so, you know, we kind of have to look for ways to, to build relationships and to get, uh, get to know people. And so our work in Japan, we're working in some of these very small rural communities, and we in addition to church planting, we do things to try and get to know people and to try and build relationships. So let me share a little bit about our work in Japan and how that sort of bleeds over and connects to this watch channel that I run. Um, so in Japan, we are working in a very small community. It was a community that was hit by the tsunami back in 2011. And it was a place that historically has been 
kind of very suspicious uh, of Christians and even just outsiders in general. These are, these are communities where most of the people have lived there for generations, and there's kind of two sorts of people. There's the people who were born there and who are always gonna be there, and then the people who are just passing through. And often it can be difficult for the ones who are kind of the permanent residents there, the ones who are always gonna be there, to really open up and trust the people that they don't know how long they're gonna be there for. Um, and so when we come in, um, we really look for ways to try and support the community there. Uh, one of the ministries that we've been involved in from the start, so this is uh, a, a community center, and it's in a community where people who lost houses in the tsunami have been relocated to. So one of, that initial, one of the initial challenges that happened uh, is you had people who lived in a certain community for many generations, for a long period of time, uh, they'd never really had a need to get to know their neighbors because their neighbors had always been the same people. But suddenly you had that entire neighborhood just devastated and destroyed by the tsunami. Uh, it was, in many cases, a neighborhood that then would be deemed unsafe to live because of the proximity to the ocean. And so these residents had to move to a new location. And oftentimes that would be a, an, uh, an apartment building that the government would build for survivors of the tsunami or just new neighborhoods where they'd build a number of houses for people to move into. And so you'd have people coming from all different parts of the city now gathered together into this new community and sort of needing to build a new sense of community. And so one of the things that missionaries and volunteer workers uh, would do is we'd go into these community centers and host events where people could get together, they could talk with their new neighbors. Uh, we would go and give them opportunities to talk about things that are you know, on their hearts. Early on, there was a lot of trauma, and so there were volunteers that were coming in and just listening to people's stories uh, about loss in the tsunami. And in more recent years, this is uh, from about maybe this last year, uh, my wife and I started a uh, kind of exercise ministry. I say my wife and I, she's, she's doing all the work here. She actually got certified in this program called Fuminet, which is a mental and physical dexterity program for elderly people. And so we're going and we're doing that in the community centers and trying to get to know people through that. Uh, quick introduction to my family. So it's not just me in Japan. Uh, my wife Tomo, as Pastor Tim mentioned, was born and raised there. Uh, my oldest son was born in California, and my three younger children were all born in Japan. Uh, my youngest, uh, Evangeline there, she's one years old, and she was actually born in Miyako. So she is, out of our family, she's the one kind of permanent resident. She's, she's got the, the status of being born in Miyako, where the rest of us have moved there. Uh, so that kind of, I think, is, is kind of cool to me. Uh, Miyako is in northeastern Japan. So if you see it, it's in that yellow section, small writing on the top is Miyako City. You can see Tokyo down in the middle. It takes about seven hours, seven or eight hours to drive from Tokyo up to Miyako where we are. And it's a very rural place, but very beautiful place. Um, just really gorgeous scenery, gorgeous coastline. Uh, this is a very famous beach near our house, give you an idea of just sort of what the city looks like a little bit. But as missionaries going to Miyako, some of the challenges that we faced uh, were the demographics there. So this is a city with a population of 50,000 people. And as, as many of you may or may not know, Japan is actually a place that has a very small Christian population, one of the smallest Christian populations in the world. Uh, in fact, there's a website called the Joshua Project that kind of tries to track 
sort of the status of the Great Commission and, and how far we've got to go. Uh, and they list the Japanese as the second largest unreached people group in the entire world. Um, so just tremendous needs there. And even within that, a lot of the Christian population that is in Japan is more concentrated in the larger cities. So in the rural towns like Miyako, it's even lower. So we have a, a population of about 50,000 people in our city. And within that city of 50,000 people, there are three Protestant churches, including our little church plant. And if you combine the weekly attendance of all three churches, you'd have about 25 people uh, there. So not, not 2,500, about 25 total out of a, a city of 50,000 that are connected and regularly attending uh, a Christian church. So very low numbers of Christians. And again, um, with, because of that low number of Christians, uh, particularly before the tsunami hit, uh, there was a lot of suspicion towards Christians. People are kind of hesitant about religion in general, and with so few Christians in the town, they just didn't know anything about Christianity, they didn't know what to expect, uh, and there would be a lot of resistance. And so you would have, you know, if you came in, again, before the tsunami, and told people that you were Christians, it would, it would kind of be like an immediate wall going up, where people's guards would be up on high, uh, and it would be very, very difficult to get through. And in fact, when we first came to Japan, one of the things that I heard, a saying that I heard, is that in Japan, um, it's not as important what is being said, but who is saying it. It's not as important what is being said, but who is saying it. And what that means is that if you go up and talk to a person in Japan who doesn't know you, um, and they're just a stranger, if, if you gave the most concise and perfectly articulated, beautiful, uh, emotional gospel presentation possible, if they don't know who you are, if they don't have a reason to trust you or a reason to listen to you, more than likely it's just going to bounce right off them. Um, they don't know you, they don't know who you are, you're not a person that they, that they trust or that they would listen to. They would be very polite, but very, it would be very unlikely for what you say to have much of an impact um, on their heart. They would kind of try and get very uncomfortable and get out of there as soon as they could. Uh, but on the other hand, if you are a person that they trust, if you've built a relationship with them, if there's someone that they know, then they're much more likely to listen to what you say when you get to issues of faith and issues of, of deeper meaning in life. And that's something that we really saw happen, I think, with this tsunami relief, where you had so many Christians coming into this area in the early days of the tsunami and then staying even now, almost 13 years later, there's still Christians ministering in these places, uh, really demonstrating a commitment to these communities. And when they came initially, they didn't come to preach the gospel or to start churches. They came to clean out houses, to care for people who were injured, to bring food, and to just meet people's emotional needs and to, to be with them and to suffer with them. And it really established a good testimony and a good rapport with people there. They came to have a good opinion of Christians, to trust, uh, to trust Christians more, so that when we came as missionaries to be church planters, to start a church, uh, we didn't really encounter that skepticism or that suspicion. People were very welcoming, they were very warm, 
they felt confident and comfortable to come to our church for events, uh, to come and send their kids to our church. We teach English classes there, so we have a lot of kids that come for that. And, and I believe that that attitude is really only made possible because of the relief work that was done. And when we first came to Japan, actually, uh, as Pastor Kondo was, uh, taught a, a message that really resonated with me, when he was talking about the relief work that was going on there, he preached from Matthew 23 about Jesus's ministry there. And that verse is talking about Jesus's. And we, when he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Uh, we see in this kind of a two-pronged ministry that Jesus had. Uh, Jesus went about and he was teaching and he was healing people. He was proclaiming the gospel and he was relieving people's afflictions. He did both of these things. He didn't do one or the other. And I think that oftentimes uh, we as Christians and maybe different churches and different denominations, we tend to specialize in one of the two. Uh, you might come from a, a background where uh, you have a, a, a strong emphasis on preaching and teaching and being accurate in your presentation of what the Bible says and communicating that. But maybe you don't take it as uh, important or serious to meet the needs of the poor or the sick or the hurting. You see that the, the core and the heart of the gospel is, is the message of the gospel and getting that out. Or other churches might take it the other way. They might have the core and the heart of the gospel being meeting the needs of the people and relieving suffering and feeding the hungry. And maybe the, the verbal teaching and preaching and explaining of the gospel, maybe that's less important or can be kind of set aside. But what we see Jesus doing is we see Jesus doing both of those things. And we see, I think, kind of a, a feedback where one supports the other, where people come to hear and to listen to the message of the gospel in part because They've learned to trust and to um, accept someone because of the, the good works and the things that they're doing. And that's sort of the, the attitude that we try to have when we go into Japan and into these places. Uh, we don't want to lose half of what Jesus did. We want to follow the model that Jesus did uh, and be about both uh, proclaiming the gospel and, and holding that valuing that and, and proclaiming it, but also being with people, uh, relieving their afflictions and suffering, meeting their needs, uh, and following that pattern of Jesus. And in doing that, it really opens doors. It gives people the chance to really take the gospel into their hearts and to see kind of the, the evidence and the truth of it. If we talk about how God can change your life, but if they don't see any difference in our lives, uh, there's not much of a reason for them to believe that. A couple of quick pictures before we move back to YouTube. This is our church building, so this is right in the heart of uh, Miyako City. And it's a very, again, very rural place. We've been renting it for about a year and a half. Uh, this is inside, so this is on Easter Sunday. This is the biggest crowd we've ever had. Uh, a lot of these kids are from our English classes. We do three English classes a week, and we told them there was gonna be an Easter egg hunt on Easter Sunday. They'd never been involved in an Easter egg hunt before, so we got a pretty big turnout there. Um, so yeah, so that's sort of what we do in Japan. How does that in any way relate to YouTube and, and how that goes? Um, well, one of the things that I think I started to pick up on as I was doing this channel, so I started the channel about five years ago, and it started with me on home service. We were back in California. I had some free time on my hands. 
I was just getting interested in wristwatches because I was watching other people on YouTube talking about wristwatches. And also just having these thoughts about YouTube being like a, a really important part of modern life and a, a really good opportunity and feeling like I, I at least wanted to try and understand how the platform worked and thought, well, maybe I'll just start a channel about this new hobby that I have. Um, I'll try and make a commitment to upload one video a week for a year and just see what happens. And my thinking was, at the very least, I'll learn how to talk in front of a camera, I'll learn how to use a camera well, how to do video editing, uh, and how to build an audience, how to get people to find my videos, uh, subscribe, and all of that will be really useful things so that in the future sometime, uh, maybe I'll be able to make a, a really significant channel. Maybe I can make one about our missions work in Japan, or I could do a channel in Japanese explaining Christianity uh, to Japanese people and make Christian content that way. Um, but what I didn't expect is that by talking about watches, it would open up all of these doors for deeper conversations than that and talking about faith. And I've had opportunities to pray with people. I've uh, met new friends. I've gotten connected with Christians around the world and all of that through talking about wristwatches. But that said, what I realized fairly early on is that every once in a while, you know, it would kind of slip that I was a Christian in my videos. And the, the watch videos that I do are 99% of the time, I don't mention my faith at all. They're, I try and make the best watch review videos I can, and I know that's what people are coming to see. They're not coming for a sermon, and so that's, that's what the focus is. But even still, every once in a while, a Christian would be watching and they'd see a book on my bookshelf or they'd see a prop that I was using or I would let slip something about where we were uh, and, and people would start to figure out that I was a Christian. Uh, and then occasionally I would do question and answer videos where people would ask questions and I'd say, hey, if there's anything you want to know about you know, watches or me or the channel or anything, I'm gonna do a video, just submit your questions and I'll pick some and answer them. And oftentimes those would be opportunities where people would, would ask pretty deep questions sometimes and things that really connected to me and I have an opportunity to, to kind of directly share the gospel in that kind of a video. And sometimes I would get negative responses from that and that would make me nervous. Most of the times I would get positive, but about a month ago, uh, Pastor Tim posted a video, maybe it's a little more, uh, on his podcast, on the Reflections and Faith podcast, podcast, where he was talking about wristwatches and relating it to faith. And I thought, this is, this is great. This is something I would like to share with the people who are watching my watch videos. So I put it on my community post and recommended that people go check it out. And there were a couple of comments on there where uh, people were pretty negative. And it, it sort of shook me a little bit. I was, I was sort of caught off guard. And they posted these comments. And I, I'm pretty sure they didn't even watch the video. Like, I, I'm 99% positive they were looking through their feed to find stuff about watches. They saw something come up that they related to religion, and most likely they had had a bad experience with Christianity or some kind of a negative opinion, and that just came to the front, and they started, you know, commenting. So two of those comments, come of those comments that came up. Uh, one of them, one guy said, uh, so religion filters its way into watch collecting. Safe, safe space interrupted. And so he was kind of offended by that. Um, another guy commented and said, he said, I watch you for watch content. And I feel strongly about religious content in that I don't like it. Pity, I used to watch your, I used to like your vids. So he's kind of suggesting, okay, I'm going to stop watching your videos. I'm going to unsubscribe. 
Um, and so yeah, so that kind of kind of shook me a little bit. And I started to realize, I think, you know, through seeing comments like these, and you know, again over the past few years, um, I started to realize that in a lot of ways, you know, there are people in my audience that are similar to people in Japan. In that, when the topic of religion comes up, a, a wall can often come up very quickly. And if they don't have a chance to really get to know who I am, to see me, uh, to see my faith. When I mention religion, if it comes out of the blue like that, uh, it can be a kind of a turnoff. It can be a difficult thing. And so I, I try and find ways to hopefully, through talking about watches and YouTube, um, allow Christ's work in me to shine through um, the, the parts of me that he has affected and changed and impacted. I hope that even in some small way, they can show through in my videos, even as I'm talking about watches. And what I was surprised to find out the more I did this channel is that there are some surprising ways that watches opens up those kinds of uh, opportunities and things to talk about. So two things about watches, and I'm gonna start getting a little bit nerdy here for those of you who aren't into wristwatches. Um, one thing, a, a watch tells a story, particularly when you get a bunch of watch enthusiasts or watch nerds or geeks in the same room, um, their watches that they're wearing or that they like or that they choose often will tell a story. There are just an endless variety of wristwatches out there, and when people start to get into it, they start to match up things with their personality, with their interests, uh, and they pour that into the types of watches that they're interested in. If someone is interested in World War II history, you can get watches that are very similar to the ones that were used by soldiers in World War II. If you're interested in aviation, there are pilots' watches that pilots have historically used uh, for traveling around the world. If you're interested in space travel, you can get the watch that astronauts wore on the moon. If you're interested in movies, there's a lot of famous watches from movies. You can get the watch that James Bond wore and try and go for something like that. And so there, you know, when you get a bunch of watch nerds in the same room talking about watches, you find out that the conversation often very quickly goes far beyond watches and into all of these other interests and hobbies. So let me give you an example of that by talking about the watch that I'm wearing right now. Um, you guys can't see it from here, but so let, me, let me give you a little bit of a close-up. Um, these are some videos from the review I did of this watch. I reviewed it already, so you can get a little glimpse of what my channel looks like through that. Um, but this watch is a watch uh, by Seiko, which is the first thing that I find interesting about it. Uh, Seiko is obviously a Japanese watch brand, and since moving to Japan, I've really come to appreciate them as a brand and the products that they produce, and I'm really interested in their history as well. Seiko is a brand that was started in the late 1800s, and for many years, they were really kind of in the shadow of the Swiss watch industry. So Swiss and Japan are the two major centers for wristwatches today, um, but for a long time, Japan was really struggling to establish itself and to kind of prove itself as a major player, and Seiko was kind of center in the center of that. They, they made a big push to compete with the Swiss watch industry, and interestingly enough, in the 1960s, they came out with a watch called the Seiko Astron, and this was the first commercially available quartz watch. So nowadays, most watches are battery-powered, and they have a little tiny quartz crystal inside of them that regulates the time, and it's extremely accurate and very cheap to produce. Uh, when Seiko came out with that watch and began to produce these incredibly accurate, affordable watches, it almost single-handedly destroyed the Swiss watch industry entirely, because all of those watches 
In Switzerland, they were primarily mechanical and sort of the older uh, technology. And when Seiko was able to mass produce these, it was really this kind of David and Goliath story where, yeah, they, it, they, it's called the quartz crisis. Like, it, it really shook up the entire industry when they came out with that. And ever since, they've continually innovated and come out with uh, new things. So it's just a really interesting story there. Uh, but this watch that I'm wearing is not a quartz watch. This is an old-style mechanical watch. So this has an automatic movement inside. And I think, particularly for people in the modern era, this is like a very cool thing. Uh, you, I grew up in the, you know, as a kid in the 80s and 90s, and digital watches were all the, the rage back then. Still, still are today. Now we're moving on to, to smart watches and getting even more advanced. But now I think we're sort of swinging back around where people are getting a little fed up with all the information overload and the digital technology and to see something sort of nostalgic like that and really a piece of, of history and like engineering history to think that you can have this tiny mechanical movement in there with these gears and springs, uh, all precision manufactured, and that just by winding a spring, the thing can keep time without any microchips or batteries or anything like that. Uh, I think for so many people now, it's just such a cool thing, and that's something that really appeals to me. But the thing that makes this watch special, particular to me, is the dial of it. I don't know if any of you guys noticed. It looks fairly simple and fairly plain here. Uh, it's a, a very dark, deep black. But the dial of this watch is actually made out of Japanese urushi, which is a type of Japanese lacquerware. You can see it has kind of a reflective finish. And you can see I'm kind of moving my hand around there so you can see that mirror-like finish that it has. It almost looks like a wet ink on the dial. It almost looks like it's not dried. And you can kind of see when you look closely the different ways that the urushi has pooled and um, dried on there. It's not like a perfectly flat finish. And in order to produce an urushi watch dial, you actually have to have a master craftsman who is proficient in this very ancient Japanese art form, and this is, this is actually how they make it. So each dial has to be handmade with the urushi applied by hand using this kind of old technology. Urushi is actually made out of a sap from a tree that grows in Japan. It's a very ancient art form, and the prefecture that I live in, Iwate Prefecture, is actually known for its production of urushi works. So there's a museum in my town dedicated to uh, urushi artworks. Oftentimes, it's, it's most commonly used to make bowls. They'll take a wooden bowl and they'll coat it in this lacquer and make a very beautiful bowl. But they can make uh, trays and all kinds of things. Uh, in the, the museum, they actually have an entire piano that's been coated in it. And so for me, it's just something that I got interested in after moving to this new city in Miyako and going to the museum there. And when I saw that uh, Seiko made a watch that had a dial like that, I thought that was just such a unique and cool thing. And so there's a lot of things about this watch that are personal to me. And when I travel, when I come to a place like this, far from what has become my new home, uh, it's just so great to be able to kind of take a little piece of that with me. And when I get together with other watch nerds, um, <laughs> we have this opportunity to talk about our watches and what we like about them. And again, the, the conversations very quickly get a lot deeper than just talking about the, the specifics of it, because now, if I'm talking about this watch, I'm talking about my hometown, I'm talking about Japan, I'm talking about the town that I live in and the, the art forms that they're famous for. And that's, again, that's what watches enable people to do, and I think it's just such a beautiful and interesting thing. Along with that, then, watches can also build a community, and that's something that surprised me as well. I think this is true of a lot of different interests. Almost anything uh, can lead us in that direction. 
but I've, we've definitely seen communities kind of form around wristwatches. And one example of a, kind of a, a community building event happened uh, around this channel here. So this is not my channel. This is a channel called uh, Just One More Watch. My channel is Just The Watch. This is Just One More Watch. I didn't mean to copy him, but I accidentally kind of did. He's a much bigger channel than me. He's one of the most uh, popular and famous watch YouTubers uh, on YouTube. Uh, he's a Scottish gentleman who lives in Australia, and everybody loves him. He's the nicest guy, funny guy, makes great videos. And I went to watch one of his videos one day, and I got an error message saying, this channel has been deleted by YouTube. I thought, this has to be a mistake, because again, it's one of the biggest channels out there. Everybody loves him. Clicked on another video, same thing. Um, so I had I kind of befriended him a little bit, so I sent him a message, a direct message, asking what was going on. And he said he got this weird message from YouTube saying some that that, he had, that YouTube had deleted his channel uh, because he was promoting counterfeit goods on his YouTube channel. And we, that was completely ridiculous, because I've seen like every single one of his videos. Everybody watches his videos. We all know he's not promoting any counterfeit goods. It's just completely out of left field. And th it was this time when like so many different people in the YouTube watch world were really like coming around Jody, and none of us had ever met him in person before. It was all connected just on YouTube and got to know him through there. But we were offended that our friend was being attacked like this. We all started making videos talking about how it was wrong for YouTube to do that. Pastor Tim actually posted a video talking about that as well, which is actually how I, I met Tim. Um, we got connected when he posted that video. Um, and we, yeah, again, we were kind of all talking about this. And it was this weird thing where the whole watch community kind of rose up to gather around um, and fight this injustice that was going on. Uh, and I, I feel like it made an impact. I, I don't know exactly what happened behind the scenes, but within about 24 hours, YouTube had restored his channel. Jody was able to make this I'm back video and explain all that happened. But it was a terrifying thing for him because this is, you know, he's a bigger channel. This is his full-time job. He has a family. If he loses his YouTube channel, it's the equivalent of getting fired, basically. And he had no recourse. It just came completely out of nowhere. So, and I think for a lot of watch YouTubers, it kind of scared us too. It's like, well, if YouTube can do that to him, then you know, who knows how long our channels are going to be there. Um, but it was interesting to see how, yeah, how how a community had formed almost without us realizing it. Where we had these friendships, we had these loyalties, um, we had these opportunities to interact and get to know each other, uh, and we saw that come up. So, in the midst of all that, if if watches can tell a story, if watches can build a community, then certainly in the midst of that, there's going to be these opportunities for us to shine or for me to shine as a light in YouTube, to use that as an opportunity to at least let some of my life of faith um, become visible in the, the watch videos that I do. And that's what the hope would be. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I, I got some negative comments on one of those posts. And that was about a month or so ago, a little over a month ago, I think. And it really kind of shook me because at the time, my channel was just approaching 100,000 subscribers, which is kind of a big deal for a watch channel or for any channel. Um, if, you, if you get to 100,000 subscribers, YouTube will actually send you a plaque. So I was like, really wanted that plaque. I really wanted the plaque from YouTube. Um, and I was just excited that that was happening. But then when I posted that video and I saw that negative reaction, I started thinking, maybe I should pull back a little bit. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't be too open about my faith, at least until after I get, get the plaque, right? Because if I start doing this, maybe people are going to unsubscribe. Maybe my subscriber count will start going down. And I, I really thought that. And I hated myself for thinking that, because it's like, I don't want to be ashamed of, 
uh, my faith, of that part of me. I don't want to be ashamed of you know, what, what Christ has done in my life. Um, I don't want to be pushed around by people who are making these comments and have that impact the way that I'm going to walk and live. Um, and so I kind of got this determination that I wanted to at least have one more chance to kind of really directly share something about my faith before I hit 100,000 subscribers. I didn't want to wait until after. I wanted to do it before and just see what would happen. And I was completely prepared. I was like, okay, so this is, I might lose a bunch of subscribers. It might take me longer to get to 100,000 if I get there, but I'm going to do it. So I did did another one of the question and answer videos. I said, submit your questions. And when I was at 99,000 subscribers, I published the video. And the number one question that I got was, why are you in Japan? Um, In almost all of my videos, I started out by saying, hi, my name's Dave. I live in Japan and I love to collect affordable watches. And I leave it at that. And so everybody knows I live in Japan because I always say it, but I don't always say why. Um, so that's what the most common question is asked. Why, do you, why are you in Japan? So perfect opportunity because I'm a missionary in Japan um, to share. There, there's no way you can't talk about faith and answer that question. Uh, so when I got to that part of the video where I was answering that question, um, I said that. I said, you know, to put it simply, I'm a missionary in Japan. And if you want to go a little bit deeper, uh, why I became a missionary in Japan is basically... Uh, because I believe that the Bible is 100% true. And if the Bible is true, then there is this amazing, beautiful message called the gospel, and there's a need for everybody to hear it. And for me personally and specifically, there was, I, thought I had even a, a deeper burden for the Japanese people uh, because I have Japanese heritage in me. Uh, my grandmother was actually a Japanese Christian. She was born and raised in Japan. She went through World War II in Okinawa. And then after the war, she married my grandfather, who was an American, and they moved back to the United States. And hearing her story, uh, I was always amazed by it, but I always felt a little bit, I don't know, conflicted or curious or, yeah, just had a weird feeling in knowing how few Christians there were in Japan. And yet, for some reason, my grandmother was one of the few Christians there, and she had to leave the country. And I felt like, okay, so the Christian population, it went down by one when she had to move to America. Um, And yet, in God's crazy plan and and wisdom and mercy, um, her grandson gets to go back as a missionary and and speak to uh, her people and in uh, a very deep way, my people as well. And not only me, but actually my younger brother is also a missionary in Japan. So two of her grandchildren got to go back as missionaries, and I thought that was uh, so cool. And I, and I mentioned that in the video, and I kind of closed it by saying, you know, my hope is that the people of Japan will find the same hope and joy that I have found in Christ, and that they'll be able to find it too. And I hope that anybody who's watching this video also will have that opportunity. And I thought I might be crossing the line a little bit there, that maybe that was too direct, because again, in my mind, I'm looking at this very similar to how I would look at people in Japan, and, and knowing that there are people that have that strong reservation, uh, and hoping that I'd had a chance in all the videos that I've done before to sort of shine a little bit about myself into that so that they wouldn't have a, a strong negative reaction to hearing me say that. So I waited to see what the comments that were going to come in. Um, again, expecting a lot of negative ones and maybe a loss of subscribers, but it's actually the complete opposite. I almost, I, I don't know if I got a single negative comment, and I got a lot of comments that just really blew me away. So let me share some of those with you as we close this, and then we'll go into the Q&A time. But these are some of the the comments I received from that video that I think really demonstrate how, again, a a platform like YouTube, how an opportunity 
to live out our faith in a public space, how that can have an impact on people's lives in, in unexpected ways. So one of the comments I got, someone said, really respect the down-to-earth faith talk. Not many people would be open about that, and it's really inspiring to hear your story in history. Another comment that I got, someone said, I think it's really cool that you're willing to talk about your faith on YouTube. I think a lot of people try to hide that kind of thing, which I almost did. Um, so lots of respect to you. Keep preaching. Um, and so I, that to me is one of, the, one of the things I think I've seen a lot when I, when I do talk about faith is that there are a lot of Christians that kind of come out and they're encouraged by that. And I feel like in this modern time, as Christians, you know, from a PR standpoint, it's not always a great thing to tell people that you're a Christian. People can have very strong negative reactions to that, and we can feel that pressure to keep that part of ourselves quiet. Uh, and yet, Christians are encouraged to see somebody public sharing their faith. And, and I hope that by me being that public person that they can be encouraged to do the same. And again, seeing some of the responses that we got here, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Uh, another one, this is pretty cool. It says, wow, major respect. I'm a new Christian. I was a dead set atheist and then Jesus touched my heart. This is another thing that I often see. Christians will come and they'll start sharing their testimony. They'll start sharing what Jesus has done in their lives. And it's obviously incredibly encouraging for me to read it, but they're also sharing their testimony with all the other people who are reading the comments, many of whom may not be Christians. Um, so just so encouraging to see uh, other Christians come out and sort of share that part of their lives and to have that interaction with them. Um, this was an interesting one. A little bit longer. So someone said, thank you for sharing your work there. I'm a devout Muslim Filipino, and I find a kindred spirit in your approach to affordable watches and love for Japanese culture. I've always believed in unity and diversity, and I know for a fact that if people were better Muslims, better Christians, better Jews, etc., the world would be better if we embrace our differences. Please continue your honest reviews and sharing. God bless. Um, another one from someone of a different faith. Um, I'm a Buddhist. I'm not religious, but I was touched by your work in Japan and your belief. It's refreshing. And I've been watching for quite some time, but I'll subscribe now. Um, another one that I got uh, from an atheist. As an old atheist, it's still good to hear that your faith gives you a direction and meaning in life. And then one more non-religious person. They said, you know, the best part of this video was the section on your faith and why it means so much to you in your daily life. I'm not, a I'm not religious nor a believer, but when you speak about your beliefs, it's quite heartwarming. The watch content is amazing, Dave, but thank you for opening up to us just a bit. Um, so it was just so encouraging to see people who were definitely not Christians, were from different faiths or non-faiths, and yet they were encouraged by me sharing my faith and what Christ had done in my life. Um, and I found that to be an encouraging thing, to see that I have that opportunity to at least allow the light of Christ to shine a little bit through me. And, you know, I, I don't get to see all these people. I can, I can answer back to them in comments. But, um, you know, my real hope is that they'll have other Christians around them. And when they see something in me, hopefully that that will spark conversations in their face-to-face -face lives and that they'll be more open to hearing the gospel through that. Two other one, interesting things that happen, a lot of times people start asking questions and it sparks a great chance for debate. This is a very tricky one, very specific to Japan, but one guy said, I know a lot of Christians do also believe or honor the traditional Shinto in Japan. How are your thoughts about that, if I may ask? Now, this is a very tricky subject for Christians and for missionaries. He goes on to say, for me as a Christian who has studied a little bit of Japanese culture at university, I found it very interesting, even though we believe in one God, which Christians do, uh, the spirits or gods of nature always fascinated me, and most of all, there is a way, uh, and most of all, 
that there's a way for people to be Christians still practicing Shinto without feeling bad about it. Um, again, this would be an entire long conversation to parse through all of that. Um, as Christians, we clearly believe in, in one God and that it's only appropriate to worship that one God. And that is a, a challenge within the Japanese religious belief systems is that they have a belief in, in many gods. And the, that belief in many gods, it, it is connected to almost every single holiday and family traditional practice uh, in Japan. So separating that in a way that doesn't destroy family relationships is very difficult, and that's something that we really have to walk carefully with um, in preserving what Christ teaches us and yet still trying to find ways to show respect and honor to families. So yeah, so that, that was, that's a difficult one to get, but just the fact that we can Again, go from talking about watches one second into these incredibly specific and detailed things about theology and faith in Japan. Um, another one from a Christian um, said, uh, hey Dave, not sure if you'll respond, but as a fellow Christian, I think religion is really important. However, do you believe there's a link between faith and reason? Do you think it's important to marry the best of our science and philosophy and religion in an integrated fashion, all mutually supporting one each other? Do you even get these kinds of questions where you are, and as in harder-headed reason-based questions or doubt? And if so, what, are the most common, uh, what is the most common one was your response? Um, so again, it's, it's talking about watches. I do a watch channel. 99% um, of the time, zero conversations about my faith, and yet still through it, God opens up these doors to have these really deep conversations, to make these connections with people all around the world, to connect with both Christians and non-Christians, um, and again, to be kind of that city on a hill, with in this case, the hill being YouTube. Again, something that I, I never expected would happen, um, something that uh, I, I particularly never expected to happen talking about watches. And yet, I think that it really shows that point that we, as Christians, we can glorify God, and we should try to glorify God in everything that we do. And there's so many different ways he might work through us, so many ways he might connect us with other people, even through things as frivolous as our hobbies, uh, even in our work and in other places. And it's just an opportunity I think we should all think about and, and look for what God might be doing in there. Uh, and then again, also, just considering how we might be a part of this kind of great social media thing that really opens up the doors to connect with so many people in this kind of new, unique way. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and close, and we'll turn it over for questions and answers. Thank you, Dave. Um, you, you can sit down and relax for one second. I'm going to make a couple quick announcements, and then uh, we'll turn it over to Dave again for some questions and answers. Um, I posted something on my Instagram account called Reflections on Faith uh, this morning. Dave and Pastor Kondo have been here since Tuesday, and I think I said something like, I have been thoroughly enjoying my time with Dave um, over the last couple of days. And someone who knows me saw the post and said, have you been thoroughly enjoying it, or are you completely geeking out? Um, and it's probably the latter. Uh, but thank you, Dave, for your very thoughtful reflections. Let me uh, lift up the next Faith in Life event uh, featuring Cole Arthur Riley. That's on March 9th. 
Um, so coming up relatively quickly. Um, and if you would like to be reminded about that, again, please go to our website, sign up for our emails, uh, go to our social media channels, and we will alert you about those upcoming things. Um, Cole is, is a very uh, well-known author, very young author, um, who will be a really powerful speaker. So I th hope you can join us for that. Um, I also want to, as always, say a word of thanks to the people who make these events possible. I mentioned when I welcomed you all, this is the 20th anniversary uh, of this uh, series. And uh, we, I started it 20 years ago with five speakers and not a single dime to pay for any of it. Ever since then, we have operated in the black every year consistently, thanks to the generosity of individuals and corporations in the area. Uh, they are listed in your uh, program here. I will mention at least our corporate sponsors, Crossroads Financial Group, Cressa, Ulrich Real Estate, Mali Design, Augio, Productivity Inc., Rapid Packaging, and Mastercraft Labels. Uh, many of the sponsors are, and individuals as well, and again, I'm not gonna read all of them, are here tonight or watching online. Will you join me in thanking them for making these events possible? Um, I, will thank, I want to thank Jeff Elstead, too. Jeff is our usual guitarist. He came down with a cold, so he could not be here. But as you came in, you were hearing music from him uh, electronically, and you will hear it as you leave. So Jeff, if you're watching, thanks for your uh, ongoing support. You're here to hear Dave and not me, but I'm going to just tag one thing onto what he said. He mentioned that video that I did on my own YouTube channel, which does not have 100,000 subscribers <laughs> yet. Uh, <laughs> about Jody, and um, he was talking a little about, I'm gonna use the word, how he was a little sheepish, or has been sheepish about talking about Christianity on his Watch channel. So when I sat down for episode 124 on, and this was whatever, July of 21, to do something about Jody, I remember sitting down in front of the camera and saying to Tim, the editor and videographer and producer, we're gonna do something a little different today, and I'm gonna talk about watches because of this event uh, that happened to Jody. And I'm not making this up. I was worried about that and felt awkward about it, and I was concerned that, uh, in, in an opposite way, I was disclosing something that didn't belong on a faith-based channel. And the mini-sermon here is that out of that, I'm gonna call it risk that I took, um, beautiful relationships have resulted. I was, I've been uh, following along a little chat uh, from people who love watches around the world who are watching this tonight. They're posting pictures of the watches they're wearing. I was just chatting with someone from Canada, <laughs> someone from Australia. Um, it's a big deal, and I wouldn't have connected to any of those people, and I wouldn't have connected with Dave if I had not taken that risk. So just to, I'm gonna just put an exclamation mark on um, a willingness to step out in faith, whether it's uh, by talking about watches or talking about faith. And by the way, if you want to hear a, a, an extended interview that Dave and I just did, we taped it yesterday, I think. Uh, it'll probably air next week on the Reflections of Faith channel. Um, you can find that at Reflections on Faith. So, um, on YouTube. I think that was all I wanted to say. So uh, I hope some of you have questions. I do have some from people online, um, but if anyone here has a question, uh, please come forward to one of the mics, and I'm gonna have Dave come back up and answer them now. And if no one here wants to kick it off, then I will with some of the questions I've gotten. The, the first one's always the hardest. 
Oh, we do have one. Okay, Stan. Uh, hello. <coughs> I, uh, I enjoyed the presentation very much. Thanks for coming. I have a question somewhat unrelated okay. to the topic of your discussion, okay. but it's just out of a curiosity about Japan. I yeah. noticed on one of the maps you had there, uh, the town that you are living in mm. is not too far, maybe, from Fukushima. And um, the tsunami, Yeah. and if my brain tells me correctly, you know, that was the radioactive, uh, Problem, Correct. and I'm just curious yeah. if it's ten years later. Uh, what is the situation? Do you worry about that, or has so, that whole region been yeah. uh, so if evacuated? You see the, if you see the yellow portion of this map uh, that's on the Pacific coast, so the right side, there's three prefectures. Um, Miyako is uh, where we live, which is in the northernmost prefecture. You see the little red writing there. Uh, the bottom of this yellow area down here is Fukushima. So we're fairly far from it. We're kind of far from Fukushima. Uh, so there's not, at this point, where we are, there's not a concern for radiation. In Fukushima, in the area around the power plant, there still is. Uh, there's still places that are uninhabitable. In fact, we recently drove through the area on the way to Tokyo. We kind of made a wrong turn. There's, there's two roads to get to Tokyo. One is to go through Fukushima and one is to go inland. We accidentally took the road through Fukushima, and they still have radiation meters posted along the road telling you what the radiation levels are at these places. So we didn't, we didn't do any rest stops or anything along there. Um, but yeah, it was, it was kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, in, in Fukushima, in the area around the power plant, there's still radiation and, and still areas that you can't go into. But where we are, it's, it's not an issue, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um... I've got a, a bunch, but uh, we'll just dive in here. Uh, first one is, have they sent you your 100,000 subscriber plaque yet? Um, it, it came while I was here. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I see, I also, I'm, I'm going to try and pull it up so I can show you guys, but you go ahead and answer, ask the, the, any other questions. Okay. But yeah, so they do send um, you that silver play button. My wife opened it up and sent me a picture of it while I was over here. Oh. Um, okay, I'm gonna read uh, three from someone who I believe is watching from Canada. You can take all or none of them if you want. I think you know who this is as well. Where, where's the camera I can look at? Oh, uh, it's gonna be the one with the red light on in the back, yeah. They're right down um, there. So I'll just read all these. One, should a pastor slash priest slash missionary buy and wear a luxury watch? Two, how does integrity play a role in transparency when it comes to remuneration for reviews? And three, what makes Presbyterians God's preferred denomination? So no hard feelings. I, I'm a Baptist. I know this is a Lutheran church. I, I know the guy who asked this question is a good friend of mine. He's a Presbyterian. We go back and forth on this a lot. Um, so in response to his first question about whether clergy should wear luxury watches, I think that's an issue of individual uh, conscience. Um, it's not something that I personally would do. I would feel very uncomfortable with that. Um, I, I think it could be wrong and it could be okay depending on the other factors and your perspective and your, your reason for doing it in a lot of things. So I, I wouldn't make a, a blanket judgment call on that one. 
Um, what was the next one? Oh, remuneration. Oh, the thing about uh, transparency about uh, remuneration so for reviews. That's a kind of a hot button topic among watch reviews and probably a lot of product reviews nowadays. If you guys watch product reviews of anything online, um, a lot of times the companies will give the product to the reviewer for free to do the review. Um, I get a lot of watches that way. And the question then comes, well, if you were given the watch for free, is that gonna bias your opinion of it? Are you gonna be more likely to say nice things in hopes of getting more free watches? And I believe that that is a, a real danger and that's something that, um, yeah, that, that can come up. And the only way you can really mitigate that is just by letting people know exactly what the terms were so that they can make their own judgment calls. So yeah, in my particular case, and in most of the credible channels that I'm aware of, um, they do that. When they get a, a watch, they tell whether it was sent in for free, and then people just have to make a judgment call based on that. And uh, the question about Presbyterians, no, no. <laughs> That's all I can say to that was no. Okay. All right, we have one, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Dave, thanks for coming tonight. Um, I was very curious about kind of your YouTube start and how you gained traction and if there's like a specific yeah. moment when um, you gained followers and how that progressed over time. Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, so I started the channel. Uh, after one year, I had about 1,000 subscribers, which I think is fairly normal. I think almost anybody, if you post a video a week for one year, you'll probably get 1,000 subscribers. You'll probably get up to there. Uh, after two years, I think, I think it was after two years, I hit 10,000 subscribers. So in that second year, there was a huge jump. Three years, I probably hit 30 or 40,000. And then now four or five years, I just hit 100,000. Um, but yeah, the, the initial first year was very slow. Uh, it felt like not much was happening. Videos were, would not get a lot of views. Uh, I eventually put out a video. Uh, I reviewed a inexpensive watch from Seiko that kind of had a resemblance to a Rolex. And that was basically the title and the thumbnail of the video. People are interested in Rolexes and they're interested in not spending $10,000. And I didn't see that coming. I, sh I, sh I should have clued in, that would have been a good one. But that video has since gone on to get over a million views. Uh, and so that video really launched the entire channel. I didn't think it was a great video. Um, I almost didn't upload it because I was kind of tired when I was making it. I didn't think it turned out that well, but I figured, well, might as well do it. Um, but yeah, that one just spiked like crazy. And there's kind of, it's kind of been like that. There's been, every, every once in a while, I'll produce a video that, for whatever reason, it just takes off. And that's really how my channel has grown. It's whenever I do a video that, that gets a lot of traction, that kind of goes mildly viral, uh, then I, I get a, a pretty big gain of subscribers. Recently, it's sort of been more steady. I'm, I'm getting about 4,500 new subscribers every month right now. And that's, that's without having a, a well-performing video. If I happen to make a video that catches on, then that number will, will jump up. So yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how it, it goes from here. But yeah, it was eventually just one video caught traction and that really, like from then, YouTube started recommending my channel more and more on all the videos, yeah. All right. Um, this is a genuine question, Dave, which maybe you can just say, well, I just answered it through your response, but I am not making this up. It's what advice do you have for Pastor Tim to grow his channel? <laughs> these are all anonymously submitted? Or are What's these that? anonymously submitted? They are. I, I have okay. no idea who they're from. Are you sure you don't know who submitted that one? Okay. 
Um, no, actually, we talked about this. That was one, we did it after I first contacted, got in contact with uh, Pastor Tim. He asked to do a Zoom call, and that was one of the things he was asking. Um, I don't know. Do you want me to talk about this publicly? Or? <laughs> Maybe not. No, okay, so. We'll talk later. So, honest opinion, reflections on faith. I am absolutely blown away at the quality and the production and the content of that channel. Like, like they, you, guys have, you guys have better looking video and cleaner audio on a technical level than I do. Um, I think the, the challenge that you have as a, as a faith-based channel um, is it's, yeah, like you say, you're, it's, you're very reserved to do the real clickbaity, play the game kind of thing, which you, you can't do as, as a faith-based channel because you, you tarnish your reputation as a, as a pastor and, and you lose trust that way. And, and a faith-based channel is all about having very deep trust with people. So it's, I think it's a much more difficult thing to, uh, to gain that. You know, as, as a channel that, again, 99% of the time doesn't focus on faith, I can make videos that say, this watch is as good as a Rolex and only costs $100. And it's a very clickbaity thing. And I, I, I'll do things like that, and then I will try and justify. I've never done one that says it's as good as a Rolex, because it's not. A, Ro a Rolex is going to be better than every $100 watch out there. Um, but I think that there are similarities and stuff. So, so I can do these kind of clickbaity things. But I guess what I would recommend for Reflections on Faith, and this is a difficult thing, I think, for you guys, um, would be to keep uh, every once in a while, not as an uh, everyday thing, but consistently trying something new, mm -hmm. something different from your normal format, and seeing if it gains traction. Because similar to how I got that one video that took off, if you guys can get that one video that, that catches a wider audience, uh, then I think you, you can gain more traction that way. And that, that allows you to kind of clue in, and, and maybe you might wind up uh, doing one of those sort of more, I don't know, viral or controversial or, or something that, that gets people in the door. Uh, every once in a while, you get, you get a burst of new people coming in through that, and then you can still have your baseline of, of constant, great, deep, spiritual content. That, that would be what I would, I would try uh, to grow the channel, is to try, and, try new things every now and then and see what gains traction. If you find one, then, then keep doing that every now and then. Yeah. All right. Well, we're trying something new this week with you yeah. as an interviewer or interviewee. Uh, another question. Um, I'd be curious to hear his thoughts on the state of the Japanese watchmakers. How far up market is Seiko looking to go? Is there a coordinated effort by, this is sort of geeky, is there a coordinated effort by Epson to have Orient be the Toyota watch brand and Seiko be the Lexus? What other Japanese watch brands should we have on our radar? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Did anybody understand any of that? Um, yeah, so, so they, they were talking about Seiko and Orient. Seiko, you guys know about, I talked about them today. Um, as far as them going up market, uh, Seiko's prices have consistently gone higher and higher in recent years, and it seems like they're trying to move from making really affordable watches to making more kind of mid-level. They actually, Seiko actually goes all the way um, up into the luxury level. They'll make watches that cost up to $100,000, uh, but those, those will be under their Grand Seiko line, so they have a luxury watch segment. Um, so they'll go clear up there, and they've been making some pretty impressive watches lately from, again, more of a geeky standpoint. Um, I actually don't feel like Seiko is leaving the budget section behind, uh, and I think that my opinion on that really changed recently. They came out with a, a pretty affordable uh, GMT watch. So it's a watch that can tell the time in two time zones at once. It has an extra hand on the dial. 
And in order to do that, they actually made a brand new mechanical movement that can do that. And so, so typically, to make a mechanical GMT watch was very expensive. Um, they actually went out and produced a low-cost movement, one of the, the first ones like that. And I think that really kind of shows a commitment that they still do want to make affordable watches and, and be in that realm. Um, as far as Orient, so Orient is very similar to Seiko in some ways. They're actually kind of connected by the same company. Um, Epson and Seiko sort of had a merger of sorts. And so Epson actually owns the Orient watch company, which is another old Japanese watch company. They tend to make very affordable watches. And so some people think there's like a conspiracy going on in the background where you know, Seiko and Orient are kind of sister companies and Seiko said, okay, we'll start making expensive watches. You, you fill in the gap that we leave behind. I don't know if that's exactly what's happened. I don't have any information that's going on in the background, but yeah, I, I don't know if I could answer his question and explain his question both in the time that we have. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, we have a, a person here, please. Hi. I've been a part of the Faith and Life series since it began hmm. and have been attracted to it because of understanding how faith can intersect with our everyday lives. I appreciate everything you've said tonight, but it seems to me that it's basically been a marketing program for watches. And I want to go back to how you okay. started this program, saying that you're in a community of 50,000 with three Protestant churches, uh -huh. of which you have 25 people who are members. That's 7.5 people per church. You're not growing that community very fast. Mm. How are you having an effect in your own community with this program? You're talking about my community in Japan? Yes, where yeah. you live and who's paying your bills and right. your family that's growing there. Yeah. How, are they, how are you growing that faith community through this? Yeah, so uh, I don't see an overlap with the watch YouTube uh, community, at least not a, not a direct one, uh, with our ministry in Japan. And so the Watch YouTube channel, it started as a hobby and it still is. It's kind of like my day job is, is as a missionary and then in the evenings and on my day off, I, I work on making watch videos to, to produce that. Uh, so I, I don't really look at it as the YouTube side of things supporting my work uh, directly as a missionary. There, are some, there have been some interesting, unexpected ways where that's happened. Uh, but as far as growing the community in Japan, that is through our work in church planting, in preaching, and teaching, and teaching English, and building relationships, getting to know people, and trying to share our faith that way. Um, that's how we hope to, to grow the community. And it is going very slow. It's, it's been slower than we expected, but not unusual for Japan in general. Uh, you know, the overall statistics are that Japan has less than 1% Christian. That has been relatively static over the last 60, 70 years. Um, so there's been missionaries laboring in Japan uh, since the late 1800s, and the, the population hasn't grown dramatically. So over 150 years of Protestant missions, and this is still where we're at. Why that is and what it's going to take to get that would, I think, take another hour and a half talk, so I'll leave it there. Uh, ways that this has surprisingly interacted with the ministry in Miyako, um, a couple of them. So when I did this last one and, and explained a little bit the, about my missionary work there, um, I actually had 
uh, people commenting, asking if they could support us. They, they wanted to send in some financial gifts to support the work we were doing there. Um, so we had some extra supporters coming through that. Um, last summer, we went back to meet with churches and try and build some relationships with new churches. And I got an email before then. Someone emailed me and said, uh, hey, I love your watch videos. I'm going to be going on a trip to Japan. Do you have any recommendations for a watch I should pick up while I was there? And oh, by the way, I, I heard that you're a Christian. I really appreciate that. I go to such and such church in this city. And I was surprised because the church that he mentioned was about 20 minutes from my parents' house where we were going. And so I was like, well, no way. I'm, I'm about to go back to California this summer, and I'm going to be like right in your area. And I didn't ask anything of him. He went back and said, I'm going to talk to my pastor and see if he can come and share at our church and talk about what you're doing in Japan. So he did. We actually, I got to go meet his pastor. They invited us to come to their church. Family had a wonderful time, and we got to kind of share about what we're doing in Japan with this new church there, and, and they're praying for us. And yeah, it, it doesn't always lead to direct financial support, but just in a lot of ways receiving encouragement and support from people I never would have met, um, and even a lot of you guys tonight. I, I, I hope that you will pray for Japan after hearing this, even though the primary topic was to talk about watches. So I see even this opportunity to come and share about that. Um, as in an indirect way, allowing Christians from around the world to take part through prayer and support of the work that God is doing in Miyako. Yeah. Thank you for coming tonight. I really have enjoyed your talk and uh, hearing your story, and uh, I think you're doing a beautiful job of sharing God's light in the world. Um, I'm interested in the social media aspect of what you do because, uh, of course, we hear a lot of negative about what social media is doing to us these days, yeah. and I can speak to it personally, for yeah. sure. And yet it does a lot of beautiful things. Yeah. So uh, as many things are on this planet, we have to kind of work with the, the, the good and mm -hmm. the bad. Um, but specifically, um, I'm interested in your take on that topic because you have a different worldview Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're experiencing this in Japan as opposed to our experience here in the United States. And then also as a father, um, you've got some kids coming up the ranks there. So I'm interested in what you might think about those kind of subjects. Thank like you. social media and how it affects that Affect, negatively and positively. Right. And, yeah. and the, the mental health aspects. Yeah. And, of course, you know, you spoke a little bit about the negative responses you've gotten yeah. and how you've had to deal with those negative yeah. responses yourself. And, uh, and we all do. Yeah. Thank you. That's, that's, yeah, that's a great question. And it is a very complex issue. Uh, because, yeah, there are wonderful things that can happen as a result of social media and YouTube and absolutely devastating things that can happen as well. Um, I, I don't think there's like a, a way that we can just directly eliminate the negative things. And, you know, I, I, I don't think we can just like cut off and, and kill social media at this point, whether we should or, or not, but I, I don't think it's possible. Um, so as far as mitigating the negative aspects, I think it just has to be us really being in a community in which we can be accountable, parents being involved in their kids' lives and, and knowing what's going on. And I, I try and manage that as best I can as a father to mitigate the negative aspects, um, to put appropriate boundaries to safeguard kids as they're growing and then shifting them as they get older. Um, my oldest is only 11, so so far that hasn't become an issue, but that's something that, yeah, we're, we're constantly thinking about. Um, but on the, the positive side of things, I, I would hope that 
that our reaction to that would be, on the one hand, to, yeah, to put those appropriate safeguards, to be accountable in community, um, but then also to, to put as much good to use as we can on those platforms. You know, use the good that we can and, and try and mitigate the bad. Um, just one quick example of something that I thought was really interesting. Um, so in Japan, uh, we have uh, a lot of people that um, have social issues, anxiety issues, um, depressions, a lot of mental health issues there. Uh, we had a, um, a guy come to our church one day, and he came completely unannounced out of the blue, not our church in Miyako, but in, in Morioka, in the major city. Um, and that's very unusual. People don't come to Japanese churches unless they know someone who's invited them, uh, especially yeah, if, if they don't have a reason to be there. So we were really curious how he, why, why he was there. And he, when we finally got the story from him, um, he explained that he was a Christian. Um, he had become a Christian by watching videos on YouTube. There was a Japanese pastor who was posting Christian content on YouTube. He'd been going through a difficult time in life and spending a lot of time on his computer. Um, he watched the videos, uh, became a Christian through that, and one day the, the pastor, he was watching the video, said, if, you, if anybody's become a Christian through watching one of these videos, you need to find a church in your area and go get connected there. Um, and so he did. He came to our church. He started coming. He's been coming ever since. been a good, good friend of mine. And it's just been amazing to see the way that God's worked in his life, and, and yet that started with social media. And so seeing God, yeah, again, he can use these in very beautiful and wonderful ways for his purpose. Satan can use it for very destructive ways. I think we as Christians, we need to be careful of the, the bad and, and try to amplify the good as much as we can. Yeah. I'm going to um, ask the, the last question after he answers, do not applaud wildly yet. Let me come up and give him a gift, and then you can applaud wildly. Um, but the question is, would you consider starting a second channel about your faith or about a missionary work or about being a Christian in Japan? Which is, well, you can answer that however you want. But. Yeah, so that was, uh, that was my thought originally, was, again, I'll, I'll start this stupid watch channel, let's say that, um, and, and do this for, for a while, and then I'll learn how, so I can make a real channel, like a real significant. That was, that was when I started it at the very beginning. That was my attitude going in. And again, it's like it's been surprising to see how significant this watch channel has become in, in the ways that it's opened up doors and that God's used it. Um, so I definitely have a different perspective on that. Um, I still would love to uh, be producing other content. A lot of it is just finding time to do it. Uh, but I do actually have a channel about missions. Uh, so if anybody is interested in that, it's, it's Dave and Tomo. My wife's name is Tomo. If you search YouTube uh, for Dave and Tomo, it should come up. Uh, and I don't upload there very frequently, but my, my hope and my plan this year is to start regularly, at least once a month, doing a, a video, um, taking some of the things I've learned from the watch side of things and, and trying to produce video content to share about what we're doing in missions. Um, long term, uh, if I ever get the time and if I get the confidence in Japanese, I would like to start a Japanese language channel uh, talking about uh, Christian topics uh, for Japanese, because there's, there's very few of those kinds of channels in Japanese language. Uh, so I'd love to do something like that as well. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so uh, thank you all for coming out here in Plymouth. I'm, I'm so glad you did. Uh, thanks to everyone who is joining us uh, online. I'm grateful for your presence wherever you are in the world. Um, 
Pastor Kondo, we're so grateful to you uh, for being with Dave. And Dave, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that we connected a couple of years ago, and I'm so grateful you took the time to fly halfway around the world to be with us and talk about the important work you're doing. So thank you very much. We have a little gift for you here. Um, it says, with thanks to Dave Robison for bringing faith to life. And we thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. Thank, you. Thank, you. Thank, you. Thank, you. Yeah, thank you very much.